Brought to you by the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Standards Matter, a podcast about professionalism and accountability in real estate. The following scenario is inspired by a real professional conduct case. Some details have been altered for storytelling purposes, and we've removed all identifying information to respect the privacy of those involved. May Lee was exhausted. She had just finished the last 12-hour shift on her rotation at VGH and was looking forward to getting back to her warm bed. Bruno, her husband, would be gone for the rest of the evening working on his latest project. That meant a long, undisturbed rest was in the cards. The drive home to Maple Ridge was relatively quick. Before she knew it, her car was firmly in the carport and she was walking up her front steps. May fumbled with her keyring, then slid her house key into the lock. As she twisted, the familiar clunk sound from the deadbolt was curiously absent. The fog of her workday made it hard for her to process, but when she swung the door open, her stomach dropped. The back patio door of her kitchen was wide open. That's when it clicked. The front door was unlocked. A thousand thoughts churned through May's head. Did someone break into the house? Were they still there? Should she go in or call the police? Through the panic, it came to her. The lockbox. Her realtor, Danny Marin of Exhibition Realty, said there was someone coming by to see the home that morning. But surely they wouldn't leave the door open, would they? After a flurry of calls, first to Bruno, then to Danny, May turned from panic to angry. How could anyone be so irresponsible with anyone else's home? She soon learned that Danny wasn't able to attend the showing, which she had told Bruno. She also learned that Danny had assured Bruno that even if he wasn't able to attend, a licensed realtor was there to make sure the lease home was safe. At least, there should have been. Welcome to the Standards Matter podcast, brought to you by the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. I'm your host, Andrea Westaway. In each episode, we explore scenarios inspired by real professional conduct and arbitration cases to give you practical insight on how to strengthen professionalism in real estate and serve your clients better. Our professional standards advisors vet and approve all information in this podcast. This episode, we look at security. Our clients trust us with their homes and what happens if we fail to live up to this trust. We also ask cybersecurity expert Steve Chappelle how you can keep yourself and your business secure from the online security threats we face. Now, back to the case. Calling it a busy market would have been an understatement for Sue Levitt of Happy House Realty. She had been up to her eyes in buyers and sellers for months. While she normally stuck to City of Vancouver listings, her clientele was starting to age and her buyers were looking eastward to the suburbs. This meant she was not only busy with the business of buying and selling, but she was starting to face longer commutes between appointments. It was worth it in her eyes, especially if it meant retaining some of her favorite clients. Over the years, she had made lasting relationships with a number of families, particularly the Fields. Jan and Zeke Fields were one of Sue's first clients. She saw them grow from a young couple in a tiny Marpole apartment to a mature family unit with two kids in an East Van duplex. But with a third on the way, they too were looking out east at Maple Ridge or Pitt Meadows for more room to plant their roots and see their family grow. Sue jumped at the opportunity to help them find their next home. 
And while she wasn't quite comfortable east of Boundary Road, she was excited to see this one through. Sue's excitement, however, soon turned to frustration when the busy market started to wear thin on the fields. Three months and several failed offers later, the fields were tired of being outbid. Compounding matters, Sue's business downtown had picked up, and the trips to Ridge Meadows were starting to stretch thin. Her sleep was suffering, and she was feeling physically unwell. But she was determined. She crafted a new strategy for the fields, which was followed by a new tour scheduled for the last weekend in May. After a long back and forth with the fields picking out listings, she hit the phone for days, calling her Ridge Meadows colleagues to schedule a jam-packed day. It went smoothly until she called Danny Marin of Exhibition Realty. His 1980s bungalow was perfect, and it was the home they wanted to see the most. It had a gorgeous backyard with a cement patio and extensive garden that the green thumb Zeke was particularly keen on. Unfortunately, Danny wasn't available that weekend to show it. Danny pitched the idea of using a lockbox so Sue could show it herself. Sue was hesitant. She hardly ever used her lockbox account. Showings just weren't done that way downtown, but she wanted to make it work, so she agreed. Danny said she needed to be out of the home by the afternoon and that she absolutely needed to be there to show it. In fact, he mentioned it was placed clearly in the realtor marks on the listing, something he started doing lately with the busy market bringing more unfamiliar realtors out to the area. Sue confirmed that there was no security alarm, then agreed to Danny's terms. After the call, she went searching for her lockbox card. After a whirlwind week, the tour weekend came around and Sue was feeling miserable. Her sinuses were stuffed and her head felt like it was wedged in a vise. The morning portion of the tour went well, but by 11, Sue was at her limit. The field seemed understanding, but their disappointment was clear. They wanted to see a few more homes, especially the little bungalow they had booked next. Sue could tell the fields were more upset than they were letting on. She wanted to do something. Then it dawned on her, the lockbox. She fished out her lockbox card from her bag and passed it to the fields. She knew them. They were trustworthy and respectful people. She handed them her card, gave them a quick rundown on how to use it, and said her goodbyes. The seller would want such motivated buyers to see their home, she thought. Sue made her way home for some much-needed sleep. Before long, though, the buzzing of her phone woke her up. It was Danny, and he was livid. Not only had the fields left the door unlocked, they had left the patio door wide open and had tracked mud through the home. How could you have let this happen? Danny asked. Have you never shown a home before? I didn't, Sue shot back defensively. Danny paused. You weren't there, he asked. Sue hesitated, then relented. No, she said. Danny hung up the phone and immediately called his managing broker, then the board. The Professional Conduct Committee thoroughly investigated the situation. They reviewed the lockbox access records, gathered statements from the clients, salespeople, and brokers. The case was clear-cut. Sue was in breach of Article 3 of the Realtor Code, which states... A realtor shall protect and promote the interests of his or her client. This primary obligation does not relieve the realtor of the responsibility of dealing fairly with all parties to the transaction. She was also in violation of the rules of cooperation, including Section 6.02, which states, Cooperating brokerages must ensure that the buyer is accompanied and supervised by a licensee throughout the appointment, 
Section 6.08, which states, A member shall not conduct himself nor permit his employees to conduct themselves in such a manner as to prejudice his reputation or the reputation of the board. And Section 10.01, which states, Access cards and the associated technology are issued and registered for the exclusive use by an individual member and are not to be loaned or shared under any circumstances. And it is the responsibility of the user to ensure that all security precautions are taken prior to departing the property. While nothing happened to the property, the Professional Conduct Committee viewed this as a serious breach of trust. The house was left unsecured, the back door was open, and the reputation of the profession was potentially damaged. With that in mind, Sue consented to discipline, which included mandated education at Sue's expense, a one-year suspension to lockbox access, and a $15,000 fine. We sat down with our ethics guy, Kim Spencer, to discuss what Sue could have done differently in this situation to satisfy both her clients and her professional obligation. So, Kim, why was this case considered such a serious breach of the rules of cooperation? Well, it's serious because it doesn't just involve a fairly common garden dispute between two members, which sometimes arise, different business models, things like that. You know, two members disagree on how something should be done. This is a, a in, an, in another dimension altogether. What you have here is you've got a member giving access to someone's home without them being there and all the potential difficulties that can arise from that. And to make matters worse, the home is not left secure. Can you imagine the newspaper article or the media article that could have resulted from this and the, and the damage that would be caused to our collective reputation by it? It's a really big deal. Yeah, thanks. So lockbox usage isn't universal. For example, Fraser Valley Real Estate Board members use lockboxes at a much higher rate than REBGV members. What can a member do if they're not familiar with expected lockbox etiquette in the area they're looking to do business in? Well, it seems fairly obvious, but I guess it's not all the time. The obvious thing to do is if you don't know something or if you're unfamiliar you would talk to your managing broker or a trusted colleague as right. to what the expected conduct is. I, I don't understand why someone wouldn't do that. Um, I mean, look, someone working in Yale Town or the east side of Vancouver or really pretty much anywhere in our board area, lockboxes aren't used a lot. They used to be, mm-hmm. but it's not the custom now. So someone from Yale Town is not going to know what the expectation is. So if you don't know what the expectation is, why would you not look at the rules of cooperation and have a conversation with your managing broker instead of barreling in and putting your reputation and the reputation of all the members and the seller's property in jeopardy? Yeah, that seems the big one to me. It is really big. (laughs) You you can probably tell a little passionate about this. It just seems (laughs) so egregious that someone would give a lockbox card to their clients and, and say, yeah, fine, just go wander into somebody's house, take a look at it, lock up when you leave. Yikes. So clearly this was a pretty clear violation of the rules, but are there any other complaints that you see come up around lockboxes in general? Sure. And let's circle back to what I said first, which was fairly common a garden complaints between members about each other's conduct or their business models. Look, we only have one rule 
in respect of showing properties. Well, no, we've got more than one, but we've only got <laughs> one in, in my mind right now, which is there has to be a licensee at that showing inspection or appraisal for the entire duration of that appointment. Right. And not opening the door, driving away and having a coffee because the home inspector is going to take three hours to get through the, the, the property, that kind of thing. There, The expectation is that someone will be there. And so sometimes members will butt heads as to who is it who's supposed to be there. Sellers agents will say often, well, it's the buyer's agent's job to be there. And the buyer's agents will say, well, why would I be there for three hours? I, it's crazy. I'm not the home inspector. I'm just sitting there tapping my fingers on the kitchen counter for three hours. It's not productive use of my time. All of that misses the point. This is someone's most valuable asset. Right. And you've now got a non-member in the property, possibly with their clients, with no real estate agent there. It's, it's again, it's a reputational issue. It, it's a security issue. It's a respect issue. Mm. Someone has to be there. So if, if the two members can't agree on who is supposed to be there, they should be talking to their clients. It's really unbecoming. I mean, I, I would expect two professionals, adults, to be able to figure out who is supposed to be there. If they can't be there, they could get a surrogate to be there, someone right. else from the office. I mean, it's really unbecoming of professionals to, to have a doorstep argument as to whose job it is to be at a particular place. By all means, they could have an opinion, but they are working for the clients and they're trying to get their clients from point A to point B. So surely two professionals could agree on what is supposed to happen in advance. You would hope. Okay, so that's all the questions we have for you today about this case, Kim. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you next time. My pleasure. The rules of cooperation are designed to help keep lockboxes safe to use, but they can't cover every security threat. Recently, cyber criminals were able to gain access to lockboxes by first hacking realtors' email accounts to steal their login information. Attacks like this not only cost you time and money, they can harm your clients and damage your reputation. To help protect you from this activity, we invited cybersecurity expert Steve Chappelle to the podcast. Steve has provided information privacy and security education to Canadian companies since 2006. Prior to that, he spent over 20 years in information technology management, analysis, and customer service, primarily in the financial services sector. He also hosted our recent virtual event, Authorized Access. So Steve, we've seen a rash of members' email accounts getting hacked recently. How do cyber criminals gain access to your email account? Mm -hmm. Well, in my observation now and into email hacking, quote hacking, um, probably there's two ways, and that is learning the passwords or guessing the passwords. So typically, the usage of autocomplete in a browser has always been a bad idea, right from Netscape Navigator many decades ago. It's, it's very synonymous to putting the key under the mat at your front door because, hey, no one's broken in yet. Right. It's a bad practice. Um, so second would be a key logging phishing malware, where if it gets dropped on your computer, 
one of the things it can do is go into the cache of the browser and capture all that stored username, password, and form data. So one bad habit makes it possible for another um, strike to take place. Right. And then so that's for learning the passwords. That's actually obtaining them. The other part is guessing them. And so some of these will be quite familiar uh, using birth dates. <laughs> There's still lots of people do that. Yeah, I'll come back and make another password and a better password later. May not. Um, leaning towards the minimal number of characters. So some places, most will require eight. Now, there's not many that will allow six, but eight is still worthless. It needs to be 12 characters. Not using common passwords that can be looked up on top 10 passwords of 2021. Yikes. Submitted anonymously from various databases for uh, articles. Somebody can just look through them and try all 10 of the favorites from 2021 and you know every fifth person's possibly using one and then another one would be the security question so if a place allows you to create your own answer take them up on that but mm -hmm. some things such as what is your favorite color well i i can tell you from experience when i used to lead a, a group of people in a tech support environment where there were always people calling in and they need to be verified there's only six colors that over 90 percent of people choose nobody right. says "ove" or hope no <laughs> blue green red yellow pink and black those are them so all they have to do is keep trying that or someone who's a publicly recognized person and it happened to sarah palin a long time ago where all she just picked questions and answers like well where did you meet your spouse well everybody in alaska knew where she met her husband right so slate magazine did that locked her out and lucky they were white hats basically they didn't do anything to her they made it public for her mm. to improve her habits so right. those are all ways that Think about it like an onion or an artichoke as a kind of a lame uh, analogy, but <laughs> there's no one solution. It's dozens of elements and you can either reduce the risk with it or take the chance. And right. each one has a better or a worse decision. Hmm. Now, as apart from using like, you know, 12 digit password and not using autocomplete, is there anything else that you can do to prevent those type of attacks? Yeah. Here's some common things that cyber criminals will exploit. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, the level of sophistication on average is not high. There are some people that are really good at it, but right. most of them are just people that if it wasn't for technology, they'd be breaking into your basement window. So right. as you just indicated there, disable autocomplete. You also then have to clear what's there because if you just disable it, all it will do is no longer store subsequent new usernames, passwords, and form data in that browser. You have to clear the cache mm. of all of that okay. and then leave autocomplete disabled, regularly update the operating system. Now, these are all things that everybody nods and goes, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but that's why Microsoft forced them on people because not enough people kept up on them. Yeah, I'll get right. to that. Or I don't feel like rebooting my computer, but that contributes to the problem. Mm -hmm. Updating your antivirus and, and other kinds of malware and making sure it's, it regularly updates and scans. Don't click on any unverified message. <laughs> so the phishing email, everybody right. gets them all the time. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we can recognize them, but sometimes they look good. Don't ever click on them. If it's advising you something like uh, there's been a password attempt, please change your password. It sounds like good advice and it may very well be, but don't do it from that email. Either phone them 
or go to their known website that you've got in your bookmarks, you know, company.com mm-hmm. and sign in the way you normally do and, and change check. your password. If people can stay disciplined about that, you've now dropped the risk level significantly on average. Mm-hmm. So one other question that I have in regards to this, and I'm just thinking about specifically my mother, lovely human being, but the more that we've moved on to technology and lots of passwords, I think she's probably would be very guilty of using like an autocomplete. Are there any apps or anything that you would recommend using for that kind of thing? Because we have so many passwords and you really should, I would assume, have a different password for everything. That's so much to remember. It it is a very, it's very challenging. So an alternate approach is to use a password manager. Okay. There are So then it's down to, well, who are the most reputable password managers? And there's usually going to be like for an organization like yours, there's going to be several names that are recognized and respected as a Mm -hmm. provider for that type of industry. And then usually there's someone in the organization that knows about that. And that would be the other way of doing it. Myself, I like to take more uh, possession of that. But like you say, there are there are exceptions and not everybody is oriented to that and has the either the discipline or just sort of can see you know the wider picture on that mm-hmm. and maybe doesn't realize that it is more severe a concern than they thought and right. then when it's too late it's too late right okay so apart from email hacking what are some other common cyber attacks mm-hmm. so one common one that has really shown up in a little while is ransomware so mm. you get an email And it's telling you that, um, or you notice that your hard drive is locked up and you can't, and we're talking, we're talking um, computers here, not, not cell phones or, uh, Mm -hmm. or tablets. It's telling you, well, you can't do anything. And then you'll get an email sometime, probably a few hours later saying, here it is. I need 780 US dollars in Bitcoin. Here's my Bitcoin wallet. Send it if you want your computer unlocked. So now you got several problems. One, somebody's trying to get your money. Two, mm-hmm. you can't use your computer. And three, well, four actually. Three, you might not know much. You might not have any familiarity with crypto. You might not have an account. You might not use Bitcoin at all. And four, are you ready to trust someone who's done this to you? That you send them this money, say you thought, well, you know, I can afford it and it's worth it to me to unlock this. You send it to them. What guarantee is there? There, Well, there isn't, right? So it's best to just follow some of those things we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. There's another one, too, that can come in on uh, phishing emails, and that is what's called a man-in-the-middle attack. So what it can do is you click on the link rather than execute some malware that captures your keystrokes or takes all of the existing username and passwords out of your cache and sends it back to who wrote it, it actually launches a web page that looks a fair bit like where it's saying it's from. So you think, oh, Apple's advised me to change my password. Apple's not of such urgency to you as your financial providers, your your professional environments, CRA, et cetera. So you think, okay, well, I haven't changed in a while. So maybe they're saying there's been a breach. I hear about it all the time. I should do that. You click on it. It takes you to a web page. You provide your username and password, but it's not Apple. If you don't look at the top and see apple.com, you know, it's going to be resembling that. But there'll be other clues such as really poor resolution graphics, mm-hmm. sometimes spelling mistakes. So it can go from suspicious to comical if you pay careful attention. Right. Again, don't click on it. Go over there in your usual way. Right. A third would be a plea for help 
bought from a relative who's traveling. So, you know, there could be some of your members that have maybe young adult children during this lull, as far as COVID appearing to settle down there, that the adult takes a trip and they're in touch with the parents. Maybe they dropped them some money now and then everything's going okay. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, I got, I got mugged, my wallet, my passport's gone. Some people have a difficult time. And if, say, your member or their child is really overexposing themselves in social media, someone could have taken the time to really soak up the data points about them to make right. a very convincing description that, wow, that, that really does seem like it's my son or daughter or whatever. Hoax extortions, which you get the email and it's saying, you know, I turned on your camera and I caught you doing this and that. And and what if that's a person that, you know, visits some websites they, they maybe shouldn't do, but, you know, that's their business. Mm-hmm. But this person's saying, I got you. That person might think, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm being extorted. But everybody gets these now and you get familiar with the routine. But someone might get one. They actually somewhat did what this person's describing. Right. And then a newer one, which I think the fixes have repaired it, but it was called a zero click malware. And that is where it gets on your device, especially on cell phones, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to click anything. You don't have to execute anything. It's waiting for responses and then it just strikes you. So that Pegasus malware that the Israeli government created, I think, to deal with the nuclear reactor in Iran, that's what that was. And that got into the wild. That went in all kinds of devices around the world that had nothing to do with that issue. And that's why Google, Apple, and, and Microsoft started pumping out the updates as they examine the code and realize, oh, okay, well, there's going to be a lot of vulnerability. Okay, here's some updates to your operating system that'll gradually reduce that down to where now right. it's just like another virus from 10 years ago. Mm, okay. And those are the concerns. Those are the, the most common ones. Okay. Yeah. So if those are the most common cyber attacks is the average person are we all vulnerable to that is there Mm -hmm. anything extra that we can help do to kind of help us against those Mm -hmm. cyber attacks and the vulnerabilities we might have against them there isn't really the average person and and why i'm saying that is people that are publicly recognized figures are much bigger targets Mm -hmm. so so people so you know politicians entertainers the heads of an airline, head of a bank, that kind of thing. So they're not actually seeking celebrity, but they are clearly recognized. Their importance and value as a target is unmistakable. Okay. From them, it can come to their family and acquaintances. So those people doing too much unloading of private information on social media is one degree away from the high value. Vladimir Putin's daughters were taken right off of uh, TikTok, I think it was, or Instagram, where they were, you know, influencers and so forth but they were just shut right down because mm. by by the russians because mm. obviously that would provide an access to right. the way we're talking about but in general so what could be applicable to everybody would be misunderstanding the distinction between everyone's need for electronic communication and the attraction of a social media platform like facebook or instagram mm-hmm. there are two internets there's one internet And everybody uses it. There isn't one for us because we're good guys. And another one where the criminals hit all the people that are really rich and kind of deserve it for their success or their bad attitude, whatever. No, no, we're all in the same pot. (laughs) From my observation, the vast majority of social media content and a large part of messaging should not have been simply donated to multinational corporations, primarily outside our borders to trade and sell indefinitely. So I'd say that's 
probably like it was hard to narrow down absolute priorities, but I would say the needless sharing of information and donating it to multinational corporations that are for us in another country and then doing it over and over and over that sets up an environment where you become an easy target. Then throw in the password concerns and several other poor habits. And some, if somebody wants to get you, they're going to get you. Okay. So I understand the not, and they don't do them as often, but it used to be, you'd see these lists that come out and it was like, oh, this is fun. Share your information. Like when you met your spouse and where you were born. And so and people kind of realized, I think that those were giving that kind of information away. But apart from that, a lot of our members do use social media as a marketing platform for right. their business. Like it's a very right. important and it has been become a very important aspect to trying to make their face known in a very busy market with a lot of members. So how can you kind of balance that? Yes, because you don't want to miss out on the potential and Uh the value of it. And to say, well, you can't have both privacy and public electronic success, but it's really was more about developing new habits that no one handed us a handbook in the early 2000s <laughs> said, here, study this and be ready when it when the tsunami of the electrons comes on us. Nobody <laughs> did that. So, no. so I, I'll put it this way. A public-facing, results-focused professional, such as a realtor, mm-hmm. has the seemingly competing interests of making themselves familiar and approachable to prospects while protecting their own privacy and the property of their customers. So I would say that right there, there's the competing interest, right? right? Yeah. Professionals in the public eye often take part in social events, such as a fundraiser. So this could be like, I've seen that when I was uh, getting familiar with your board and some of the other ones in Vancouver, you know, Mm -hmm. you just see what the the realtors and the brokers, all they take part in a fundraiser. Sometimes they were personally touched by the cause, you know, like a leukemia or hurricane, just anything like that, where someone they know or themselves. So they raise funds, which has got the additional benefit of public exposure. So when somebody needs to think about listing the house, they remember, oh, yeah, I know a name. And this person got involved and gave their time at this this good cause. So, mm-hmm. so there you go, right? A couple of thumbs up. But every piece of information and image is a data point that can be aggregated with public information to build a detailed picture of the user's life, right? Right. So everybody's kind of clear on that. And there are a range of interests continuously doing so. So people like myself that I wanted to get contact with the realtors in Southern BC, so I had to start somewhere. You don't just call up and say, oh, you know, you need to learn a bit about the person so you can actually have a genuine conversation. That's what they want. Maybe not so much when you're a provider, but certainly for a customer. Mm -hmm. It's all the same, though. So I would say that I would summarize it in two ways here. So two things to do, like to to perform some diligence. So perform some variations of detailed web searches about yourself and ask several trusted acquaintances to do the same thing. Then examine, like, I'm not talking about five minutes. I'm talking about for half an hour, maybe once a day over a week or two, because if you've been at it for a long time and and you're quite a, you know, an outgoing, involved person, you might be flabbergasted at the size of the digital footprint out there. So examine the results and determine if they're suitable for a person of their profile. 
mm-hmm. and then resolve any problem before adding further. So this is an audit you're doing on yourself. So okay. some of the realtors would have been involved in other kinds of careers previously, or they may have started in the real estate industry, either made some glaring mistakes or just weren't successful, gradually got better at it, stopped mm-hmm. making some of the mistakes, started to do better presentations of themselves publicly. Mm-hmm. But there's that embarrassing or worse stuff out there. So hunt it down, figure out a way to get rid of it. If it's on their Facebook page, there's an easy place to start. But I'm talking about other places, too. Right. The second one would be at every single opportunity to communicate online, they should ask themselves, do I need to send this message to the recipient or post it on a public website? Hmm. And is this the most appropriate, private and secure environment or platform to do so? Now, that last one's kind of a mouthful. But if you don't know the answer to that, It's your security. It's the security of your career, your finances, your family, the building you live in, the professionals you work with and for. Mm -hmm. It's more serious than the average person sees it. I wouldn't say takes it, it sees it. So Mm -hmm. I would would do an an audit on on themselves and just get rid of the things that don't need to be there and stop just thinking, well, I haven't posted something in a while. Well, keep it that way till you can explain to yourself why you should do that. Right. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. And it's on, certainly something that I've never really thought about doing an audit, but I feel like I'm not a realtor, but I can imagine our members, it's possible they haven't thought of it either. It's it's a, probably a, something we all should do going back, you know, been on the internet for a while now. So going in that direction, apart from that device, is if there was just one one piece of advice that you could give to somebody who's concerned about their privacy and cybersecurity, what would it be? Is there? I would say um, a reminder or maybe not even a reminder, a pointing out that we are our own public relations department. Okay. Whether we are fully self-employed, work for someone or in a partnership, we are our own public relations department. And as I touched on earlier, Everyone needs to communicate. Everyone has plenty to hide. So I say that because so many people say, well, I've got nothing to hide. There's never been a person born who has nothing to hide. That is not to be confused with having done wrong. Mm. Social media, because otherwise there wouldn't be, why would we put um, curtains or shades or whatever on our bathroom or bedroom? Why would there be usernames and passwords? If you've got nothing to hide, who cares if someone gets into your account? Well, because... When it's really hot, why can't we just go out for a walk or jog naked? Everybody's got got a body. Everybody is naked under their clothes. What's wrong with it? The answer is because it's not a good idea. Right. right? Not to be confused with having done wrong. I said that, yeah, social media is for the most part a global advertisement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yet most people are not selling anything in their ads. I'm talking about Facebook and Instagram pages, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They're donating private, confidential, and possibly dangerous information to anonymous strangers, primarily outside the borders of the country. Now you're subject to the laws in that country. So if you make a boo-boo, you've done it in two countries. Mm -hmm. Everything that's posted or sent should have a definable, measurable purpose to all message and post. It needs to be instinct, and okay. it's not for enough people yet. Right. Um, so a- apart from that, and all of that has been such really good information, is there anything else, any last piece of information that you'd like to add for members to know, for the public to know? Right. Well, I think that 
social media as it's commonly understood is going to be looked back upon by many as one of the biggest lifestyle errors they made in their lives, like similar to just taking up cigarettes, Okay. where you can mention some positives with both of them. Some people are going to skate into old age relatively unscathed. Nothing really went wrong. They never created any real havoc relating to social media posting. They never got attacked by anybody or robbed. Same with you could, a person could be a cigarette smoker until they're, you know, in their late eighties and they pass away of other things. It never seemed to matter. Mm-hmm. Some people are going to get hurt shockingly early by things that they posted in social media mm-hmm. and many others, if they're honest, they might be surprised to recognize elements of addictiveness, herd behavior, and narcissism in their online footprint, mm-hmm. that they were manipulated and mocked by figures such as Mark Zuckerberg, but they kept doing it. Mm-hmm. kept doing it they knew it was a bad idea they knew there was downside but if you just look away that makes it go away like you can't see me kind of thing like a child does mm-hmm. it is similar to that so concluding that the identifiable risks typically outweigh the benefits okay the benefits could be maintained while reducing the risks by adopting a more diligent conscientious approach to communication and expression okay can't do it overnight you have to accept that some bad habits have been developed or ill-advised and mm-hmm. today's a good day to stop taking those some of those pointless risks and thinking a little bit longer before you hit send or enter. Fair enough. Seems pretty, I mean, I'm not super straightforward because habits develop over time and, you know, can be hard to break, but like you said, today is a good day to start trying to break that habit. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much, Steve. That's been such a really great information. I think our members will really appreciate it. I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Standards Matters today. It was a pleasure. That's a wrap on episode four of Standards Matter. I've been your host, Andrea Westway. We plan to regularly produce new segments to engage you in conversations about standards, accountability, and professionalism in real estate. If you have a question for us, reach out on REBGB's member Facebook group or shoot us an email at standardsmatter at rebgb.org. For more information on professionalism, including our conduct and arbitration cases, visit our member website at www.rebgv.ca. On behalf of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Standards Matter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Brought to you by the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver.